On this episode of Jelly and Custard, we talk about the current social uprising happening in Eswatini. We discuss how its absolute monarchy rule has affected the country, as well as South Africa's role in lending help. We also talk about a reimagined pan-African culture that goes beyond political influence and borders. Enjoy. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, really, that place is looking skanga, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think like Walton said, like we wanna we we are in a moment right now where things are happening on our borders. Um uh, in South Africa particularly, like and in Eswatini specifically. Um I have to confess that it was very weird to go on the internet um, and read things about the history of Eswatini, but still see like these kinds of the ways in which that that formation of that state had so many different names over times. Like at some point it was inside of South Africa. Like it had its own, like it was it was part of what was called the Transvaal colony or something. And yeah. then it like became Swaziland and then it became Eswatini. And I mean, we can talk about that, but yeah, all that to say that what's going on there now is crazy um, yeah. and really important, I guess, for the region. I don't know what you guys think, but. I think well, today but, yeah. <laughs> we're discussing <laughs> mo- uh, monarchs, absolute monarchs, uh, monarchy. Um, and there's different versions of monarchy in the world, but the one we're touching on in this episode is an absolute monarch, meaning, for those of you who don't know or might not know, um, if we take uh, the mono- the British Empire <laughs> or the UK and they have a monarchy, there's a queen, there's a royal family, but they also have uh, elected uh, democracy structure with parties and uh, citizens can vo- vote for uh, their elected officials and we have the different we have the Labour Party we have um, different parties in the UK with the absolute monarchy uh, from my understanding in, in previously known as Swaziland now as Swatini is that there is one rule one one person that calls the shots makes the decrees the election you 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 elect officials but those officials have been pre-selected by the king himself so you don't you don't have much choice of of who to put in these positions because that you just need to choose who goes where the 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 officials already chosen so that's what we're going to touch upon today and i hope you guys can also help me with some of the stuff i was confused about Mm. and monarchy is being contested in Eswatini by locals for various re- reasons. And it's not something that has just popped up in the last couple of months. This has been going on for long, for, for, for years and years. And it's always been quashed um, through decrees and through overnight laws. And I think um, a few incidents arose in the last um, month or so that just people had enough. And so they mm. wanted democracy. What that looks like could be a blend of what England probably has or some other European states, or it could just be a straight up democracy, but they want something different because clearly what has been happening has not been working. I think that just before you go, Walton, I mm-hmm. see you and I just want to quickly say this while <laughs> we're on I... this thing. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between uh, absolute monarchy, which is what Eswatini is at the moment, and a constitutional monarchy, which is what the go. United Kingdom is. Yeah. Um, in which case, the Queen is the head of state, but does not really have any... The Queen represents sovereign power, whereas in the absolute monarch, monarchy, like, the King is power. Is absolute like, power. Yeah. Like, he yeah. is absolute power in a very yeah. crude kind of way. Yeah, I just wanted to throw that out there in the context of... yeah. And uh, so, I, I mean, I, uh, yeah, thank you both for that. Uh, thank you, Lee, for that, like, you know, kind of concise defining, but then also uh, Stalin for, for expanding that. But I think uh, the one the one thing that I'm kind of like, that I also want to touch on maybe is, is 
the role of South Africa in all of this uh, or the lack of a role of South Africa in all of this? Like, what are we doing? What are we not doing? But then I also want to kind of touch on what are the, some of the internal things that have been going on in Eswatini in the lead up to, to uh, you know, revolt, uh, uh, like kind of protest action and resistance uh, to oppression that's going on at the moment. Because there was, you know, there were a lot of political moves that were happening. The, their prime minister uh, died. Um, with, within the last like six months or something like that, and a and an interim kind of uh, official was appointed, um, the former uh, deputy prime minister. The king has you know like has always drawn his prime minister prime ministers from the line of the Dlamini family. So there's not only absolute monarchy, but there is like. Uh, an institutionalized nepotism uh, in terms of like the 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 performative leadership uh, in the country, and uh, w along with that goes deep deep class politics uh, and deep deep class divides. Because now, if you are a born Gramini, you already have a certain status uh, in the country. You are already uh, eligible to become a high-ranking political official and all of these things. So it's not just that the king is the absolute monarch, but the king is also cementing and like reinstitutionalizing class structures in the country. And we have to, to, to really analyze that, we have to think about the ways in which the British also operated administratively uh, during colonialism, but then also South Africa's uh, colonial and apartheid influence on Swaziland uh, and that whole region. And what South Africa can do now, I, I, we need to discuss what South Africa can do, should be doing now and, and can be doing now. Uh, and, and then one last concern I have is people are getting killed uh, and you know that that should that should already be like the the last line for the world to say like we need to inter someone needs to intervene and and help the situation. But I think there's another line that's also constantly being crossed now, and that is the line of the arrest and torture and sometimes assassination of journalists. There's two South African which, journalists that they've been which, detained there. Yeah. At the moment. So what are we which like? Is, which is deeply concerning. I think, you know, we don't want to exceptionalize journalists, but I think they occupy a certain role in society that we have to protect in order to, you know, I don't know, to to function. Um, Internet is cut off or social media is closed. Social media and is closed. And journalists are being locked up. There's two South African journalists, journalists that were detained. And like South African government or the SABC, or I don't know who, but like the comms department, like they haven't put out a statement. They haven't like, like taken a stance. And I just want to know what are the negotiations or what is the talks, what is the diplomacy and what is South Africa's diplomacy with, with Eswatini? The, I, I, no, the, the interesting thing for me about the whole internet being down and all of that stuff is that the, the biggest ser internet service provider in Eswatini is MTN. MTN yeah. And the, the local board chairperson, and you're going to have to forgive me about like not remembering their name, but he is very closely related to the king as well. So the decision to cut off the internet was basically decided by, by the royal family. Yeah. And yeah. South, South African corporations have a large foothold in Eswatini as well. We've got a massive um, trade agreement with them. Um, not only do, does South Africa also give aid, but there's, there's import-export business going into there. And I mean, them being one of our closest um, geographic neighbors, it stands to reason that 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 South African industry and 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 the economy is going to work hand in hand with with Eswatini. And I think that it's it's almost 
the silence is almost deafening from Southern African companies that do trade with with Eswatini yeah. um, about what's happening there. And I think it's I, uh, once again it all comes down to class and to to capital, because what 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 do you lose when when a, when a monarch is overthrown? You lose that protection for your for your business. Yeah, I think yeah. So you know, I I, I think there's like major mm. corporations in South Africa that are dealing with with um, with Eswatini at the moment but I think one of the one of the major state arms which is Eskom has dealings with uh, Eswatini like with, there's a there historically has been like sale of electricity I don't know if that's still 100% like a thing that's happening right now but it's it's not just private corporations you know that are like uh benefiting from this relationship but that they are state-owned enterprises or or partially state-owned enterprises that are uh um yeah trading with 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 the with the government of Eswatini I don't know. I'm just. I'm just so. Fu- I'm, honestly, I'm. I, I'm trying not to swear so much. I'm just really scared of the. Wow. Of the. Um, okay, so first of all, I'm scared about the underreporting of the the extent of the killing that's going on at the moment, uh, because we're already getting reports that 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 it's that it's more people being killed yeah. than is than is being uh, reported by the government. Uh, the current prime minister is releasing very timid statements about, you know, we need to be careful about violence and stuff like that. But I'm really, I'm really afraid about uh, of what is currently happening to these people uh, and the potential for this to be a long-standing uh, spate of violence, like over months, uh, and and really what that would look like for them because it's a small nation yeah um it's a nation where there is a lot that needs to be done in terms of providing health care for folks and so this is just going to exacerbate all of that uh, like they received fund they received i don't know a couple I don't know if it's like 18 or 16 million from the IMF for COVID relief and all that. Same, same story. It's not, it's not there. 90% of their, uh, of, of their imports uh, come from South Africa. So there is a relationship, big, big corporate relationship that goes on. Is that a real number? 90%? Yeah. 90%. You can check it up. Maybe correct me as well. No, no, no. I, I, no, I trust you. I just like, I looked that up. Like ninety percent of of the um, imported goods. Yeah, sorry, ninety percent of the imports come from South Africa. Yeah, um, and so that there is a very strong corporate relationship there, and we don't know who's involved. We like Andrik just spoke to us now about the MTN situation. So. I'm with you, Walton. Now, that fear is very present. It's very deep. Um, and they've gotten away with it many times before. This time, it's not working, though, because people are now just reached at the top. Like, their state employees haven't even been paid. They don't get paid regularly. Teachers don't mm. even get a salary sometimes. Like, they need to wait months and months. They are, are, are I won't say they're underfunded. It's just there is money, but because of the lavish lifestyle, because of the, the, the nepotism that happens in these um, royal circles, that the money doesn't go down to the people. There's no trickle down, not, none whatsoever. Um, and, and people have just, and have had enough, I think. And there's a lot of the young people on the ground as well. Uh, that's yeah. what I'm seeing. And there's a lot of young people on the ground who's getting arrested, detained, beaten up. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean... <laughs> Democracy is not perfect, right? It has its flaws. And I was reading one thing now about one of the pers- people from uh, Podemo, the political party that's coming up. Because like, to have a political party is illegal. Um, so they talk a lot on, on, on South African TV as well. He was saying, look, your democracy is not perfect, but it's 
So they need something different. Um, and if they want to try, try a, a democracy model with a, a, a constitutional monarchy, like Aiden said, then they can try, but like, this is not working. But because of this absolute power that they've been wielding, I don't think the royal family is willing to let that go. And obviously, how, how they, have they, they kept, were, kept hold of it for so long. Like, right. how, how has that family been? How has that family been able to hold on to that absolute monarchy for so long? Very, very easily. Culture. Very easily. No, yeah. it's not even traditional culture. It's the it's the it's the structure of customary law. Yeah. It's also the reason yeah. why South Africa doesn't feel like it needs to challenge so, um, like um, Swati Swati the third. Um, because there is, it's the same, um, it comes from the same history that put together the kind of um, tribal authorities of, of, you know, that that underscored or underpinned the, the Bantustan system. Like, it yeah. sounds very crude for me to put it like that, but customary law has a particular history in this region and Eswatini should not be excluded from that history. I think, I think South Africa and Eswatini share that history. Yeah. Um, very closely. Mm. And so, you know, like, I think, I think you can't, I mean, I was reading up uh, before we have this, had the session and um, the, the long history of Iswatini is tied to this idea of the Mfikane and this idea of, of Shaka and the, and, and the Zulu kind of um, disruption in that space. And we know that part of that debate is also um, part of a colonial alibi for the impact of colonialism. So, and it's also used to construct certain kind, kind of tribal fixed yeah. traditional identities that don't change. Yeah, um, of course, you know, to, challenge, so, to challenge that is to challenge culture or tradition or like to, to, to challenge the monarchy is to go back on cultural values and to challenge that kind of deep uh, centered identity um, attributes to certain cultures. Is that what you're trying to say? Like, it's just like a no-no. We don't <laughs> challenge that. Like, we don't. Yeah, and and it is a it is a it is a logic that is used to make the argument that to be anti the monarchy or to be anti the king is to be anti a kind of Swazi identity or anti a. I mean. And it, it we we faced this in South Africa before. We faced this in the in in the kind of um, the kind of ethno nationalism that we saw in the eighties, and we're seeing it now again. With we're Zuma. seeing it now. We're seeing it. Um, okay. Thank we're you seeing for it saying right it. now. We're seeing it now and in Cape And it's a it's a Ra. problem. It's a problem. I mean, this is like the ethno nationalism is scary. Yeah. Um, and. I think that it's something that needs to be addressed. I also want to talk about, just quickly, I just want to talk about the, rushing, the kind of quiet diplomacy. Uh, yeah. Why? <laughs> the quiet diplomacy of South Africa. I don't like that. Yeah. And South Africa is... I think it's something that happened after 1994 with the idea that before that, the South African state had such a strong military presence in Southern Africa and the SADC region. So maybe the ANC was like, okay, you know, let's tone it down. You know, let's follow this whole example of negotiated um, settlement. You know, let's go out into the wider world and let's, let's no longer release our military forces into the, the Congo, for example. Let's, let's send our peacekeeping forces. So there's like a whole change in the way the language operates there as well. Yeah, And so, and it's worrying. I mean, it's worrying. What does it mean for the South African state to take a decisive stance and to do something about the crisis in Iswatini? Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Honestly, I, I, I think in the, in the post-apartheid moment, there's, there's also the negotiations, obviously, that we have to take into account. And there's also the requirements from like World Bank, IMF, uh, international lenders who do not want South Africa to go into other countries and say like, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to support you. We're going to support your, your uh, radical movement, which would mean anti-US imperialism a lot of the time or like uh, anti-CIA influence or just anti-capitalism in general. So for South Africa, for instance, to go to, to Mozambique and say, 
you know, I'm, I'm not even talking about Mozambique. Now I'm talking like Mozambique uh, post the assassination of Samora Michelle and like, and in that, like two decades after that, uh, you know, when things really were in a bad state, South Africa had the opportunity to go in there and say like, look, we're going to support the radical socialist cause, but because that would conflict with the interest of the uh, mm. people giving South Africa loans and imposing all mm. of these sanctions on us in terms of what the kind of diplomacy we can practice. Uh, I, I mean, I, this, this is speculation on my part, but uh, I suspect that uh, international in, uh, like Western involvement, capitalist involvement is also part of the reasoning uh, as to why certain types of diplomacy was not practiced. I mean, we, we saw it with Zimbabwe not that long ago, the way South Africa did nothing. Like we did, yeah. Zimbabwe was going yeah. crazy and we did I mean, nothing. We I mean, forget who helps us. We can't, we can't go in and, and um, we can't go in and do anything because um, as a sovereign state, we, by virtue of the unspoken rules of the global, like community of nations or whatever, we can't go in and like, that's a challenge to another sovereign, a, a state sovereignty. That's in effect, uh, uh, an invasion for us to go in there. And so, that's true. so diplomatically that wouldn't make sense. But for example, uh -huh. there have been calls for South Africa to close down the Eswatini embassy. That's a very strong move. Yeah, that's a statement. That's a you know statement because we'll we do could that. Also with... be, we could also impose uh, sanctions yeah. as, as, like the, as the linchpin of the entire economy of Eswatini. If we had to establish, if we had to just say, no, done, sorry, sanctions, we are cutting off the country now. Like that we can, could force we can do a that hand. With the... That could force a hand to some degree, I think. I don't know. Because we did that with yeah. Israel, with, with uh, like, you know, the president came out with what's happening in uh, uh, um, Palestine, the Israeli oppression, and the, the ambassador has been spoken to, recalled, you know, like we've, done, we've made these moves before, you know, so like, just by our, our, I mean, our borders, I know it's a sovereign state, but we have a responsibility to Southern African states as well, because we must never forget also when, when South Africa needed assistance, places like Mozambique, Zimbabwe rallied the call, you know? And you like, yes, it's a sovereign state, but can you just now sit back and see this happen? Can you just watch it and see like the yeah. people getting, getting uh, killed literally? Uh, so there needs to be some sort of action. And if it's diplomacy at first, then fine, do something. Like recall the ambassador, um, speak up, do something. Because Southern Africa is watching. Like, and they, yeah. they rally to us, they look at us, and like their problems will quickly become our problems because we share borders. I mean, yeah, there I mean, is a runoff that's going to happen. I can make the same argument about any other... Um, any other act of so any other space in Africa that requires an act of solidarity from South Africa, like um, I can't even think of an example now, um, which shows my South African exceptionalism. But <laughs> the point that I'm making is that, you know, in other situations, no, maybe not as close to home as this, but in other situations, what would what would it have meant for South Africa to go in there? And to do something, do you know what I'm saying? I, yeah, and I, I, I think I need to like backtrack a bit because I was, I was talking about like I was speaking in the language of we're gonna go in there as if we're gonna like send uh, military forces or something like that, which is not what I, you know, it's not where, I, not what I had meant to, you know, be going to. I think organizations. Or like radical organizations in South Africa, if they so choose to send people in and say, go fight alongside, you know, the people of Eswatini, then that is their choice. But I think as a state, like, you know, mm. South Africa has to be more careful than that. Uh, yeah, you, you're absolutely right. What I do, what I do want to like 
kind of think about is uh, a like a different kind of pan-Africanism that can foster this type of relationship where we can hold our neighbors accountable and they can hold us accountable. And if it, if it comes to the point where we need to say, okay, you know, we're gonna pull trade or we're gonna stop sending things or whatever th the case may be, then, then so be it. But I think like they needs to operate. We, we need to start thinking about like how we're gonna operate in a pan-African sense outside of the state, like extra-statally. The state doesn't even have to be involved in this kind of pan-Africanism that I'm trying to imagine and, and think about right now. Uh, it has to be organized in a different way. Uh, and I, yeah, I, you know, we can push diplomatically, but I think the pushes have to come from multiple angles. It has to come from academia. It has, has to come from, while the private sector still exists, it has to come from the private sector. Um, although we will never be able to trust the private sector in, in the capitalist world, but, you know, we can put pressure on them. But, uh, like, you know, at the end of the day, I think the, the main thing is to develop the kinds of lines that pan-Africanists were thinking about, like, post 1950s 1960s on the continent but also in the black diaspora like people like Walter Rodney you know uh, coming here uh, Kwame Ture and, and so on these people were like in Maria Makeba people were thinking about what does it mean to be a pan-Africanist outside of thinking about the state as the thing that can mm -hmm. operate our pan-Africanism and so I don't know. I know what you're getting at. I'm saying a lot of words, but I, fuck I know what know. you're getting at. Because with the state comes legislation, comes identity, comes budget. Come, it's all these things that will stifle and have their own version of 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 um, pan Africanism that suits that state. So if we take it down to people or citizen level, there's less. Uh, red tape and less obstruction in order to get things going. And in that pan-African idea, I think you'll have less resistance, you'll have more cooperation and more shit getting done. Um, you know, because there's no, there's nothing to gain when it comes to political parties, uh, prime ministers, presidents in power, because that is a threat to them. You must understand like some of these states, Pan-Africanism as how it was described in the 70s and even 80s was, to, in today's world, that is a threat to a lot of these, yeah. the, 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 these economies and these power structures right. because you, like, you look at the, the kingdom of Eswatini, the, they position themselves to say, You're, you can only live with us being in rule like you get you you can't buy you can't bite the hand that feeds you but in the model that you propose walton is that no we, we take the state out of it there needs to be something else so that is a threat to them because they don't the, the citizens or the people of the country don't have to rely on the monarchy anymore um if there's more cooperation uh more more work being done on the citizen level throughout african countries um, but yeah. then you cut the internet and then what? <laughs> yeah, so, so, okay. Yeah, you know, so I, I just to uh, try and be more more clear than I was earlier also, like you absolutely rightly. And, and then I just want to add that I, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just think that organizationally, like building solidarity among organizations firstly within a country and then within neighboring countries that can assist each other so if we're thinking about like uh, a small farming co-op community right and you know they've got like multiple crops they've got excess and they want to trade within the community but you know there's enough for the season so like 
you, let's have a conversation with someone over the border in Zimbabwe and hear like what their needs are and can we help them out? And like it becomes a politic of empathy and a politic of love as opposed to a politic of economy and a politic of capital. And so like, I know that sounds idealistic, but I'm not trying to be idealistic. I know there's going to be bloodshed because I like st states want absolute power at the end of it, at the end of the day. St political parties want power. They're not interested in, we, we constantly hear this line, like the party is more important than the people. In we hear that in relation to the ANC. Yeah, in the States, we hear that in relation to the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. It doesn't matter what the people need. It matters what feeds the purpose of the, of, uh, the political party. I know Aiden had something yeah. to say. Uh, so, uh, sorry for jumping in there, Aiden. No, I think, I, I think uh, MK wanted to say something. Oh, sorry, my bad. Andrik wanted to say something. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think, Walton, to, to, your, to your point and, your, and pretty much your, your plight, I guess, is the fact that there, there is hope for that kind of thing because... We, we now luckily live in, in a time in Africa where the majority of people, especially the youth, are connected to one another with, without borders, right, digitally. And with the situation that's happening in Eswatini right now, there are South African organizations, there are Zimbabwean organizations, I've seen from, um, from Nigeria as well, where people are, are coming together and making sure that the situation is in people's consciousness. Um, whatever they can get out of there, like, like, in, like, you know, like in the 70s and the 80s in, in apartheid South Africa, if you could get like a sliver of, of, of a video out to the States and to the UK to show this is what's really happening. This is not the propaganda that they're showing you. Um, that's, that is actually happening. This is the real stuff that is happening digitally now and, and i know it's not a solution i know that's not the ideal kind of pan-africanism that we want but it's that's well, one it's part, of, part it. of it's part of it yeah what i feel like the future of it is going to be like because now we can that is a that is a small sliver of of what of what the ideal is going to be like where luckily we have technology now luckily we have um a foothold on each other's the devices and i think that that is going to be kind of the starting point because now revolutions and things happen and start happen start and and end digitally you know i think that's that's the future of pan-africanism i feel right and and i think i think there's also an inherent danger in that and we saw that with the arab spring and we saw the kind yeah. of a capacity for the west to infiltrate any kind of like yeah. meaning meaningful uh, people-led revolutionary action uh it was a very you know it's a very precarious uh situation we saw it in 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 zim the establishment of solidarity there what i like you know what i do want to also uh, point that and again this is something that's that aiden knows way way more about than than me is uh solidarity between South Africans, like black South Africans across the board, I'm talking about, you know, colored, black, you know, everybody, it, with the people of Eswatini and like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna traverse that uh, very much colonial manufactured tribalism that exists now? Oh. Because they, with, you know, like with, within, Within our solidarity, we're going to have disagreements, and that's absolutely fine. But I think the main goal has to be, we have to have the same goal. If we're still, you know, arguing around uh, factional lines, uh, borders drawn by colon British colonial officials, um, and yeah, I don't know. It's It's just... I just, I just feel like, I, I feel like it's doable. Obviously, it's doable. I, I, be, I, I have to believe that. But 
I just feel like that's work that we are not like we are not currently taking uh, into account in a very deeply serious way. Uh, because to have true solidarity, we would have to collapse a lot of these uh, manufactured tribalisms. I'm not saying abandon your identity, abandon what you believe you are. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying like for true solidarity to go toward the, the work of liberation from, in this case, the, the Eswatini uh, monarchy, we there has to be a certain kind of loosening, collapsing of these uh, fictitious, you know, manufactured boundaries. I say fictitious loosely because it's very real. Yeah, it must, it must be it's, very, it's very, very real. It's very real to people. Mm. I think of, you know. I think, remember on campus, right? Remember the SRC and how come SRC voting time, you had the Pan-Africanists, you had the the ANC guys, you had, and that, I think once it becomes politicized, you can't, once cultural differences and identity and that becomes politicized, then you have a problem. I think we you like you can't now say we're all the same because what happens to my closer friends and my Zulu friend? Like, do you want must I must they lose their identity? Must they, you know, I think it's a mixture between not politicizing it, acceptance and coexistence. I don't know, man. It sounds airy fairy when I'm speaking about it coming out of my mouth. Well, but we have to we, we have to have aspirations though. Like I know erasure, I know what you mean. erasure is what my fears like. Then it then it's, it's it starts again like cultural erasure like you know like we need to kind of understand we're multicultural yes we're multicultural but we don't form our politics around that do you know what I mean like that's the Zulu party that's the Tosa party that's the you know I, I don't know if you understand what I'm but, saying yeah, I think once we politicize cultural norms and identity i feel like aiden is gonna come with the hits now but, but i'm ready i'm nervous not to drop a citation but <laughs> nah, drop um, we need the citations i think people no, people want to have the citations there's too. this there's this video that i always like i i really like like we'll it's send a, a link snippet of a, i'm gonna a include in. a link in the show notes yeah it's a little snippet from a Stuart hall lecture and what he talks about he says Race is one of the great classificatory systems of the of the world. Mm. And then he, then I read somewhere else where someone says the thing that Europe gave us, or the thing that colonial colonialism gave us was taxonomy. It was a way to inscribe difference, right? So when we think about what does it mean to build solidarity, what you're really asking is how do you get over that? How do you like transcend? the kind of inscribing of difference, the kind of classificatory systems that we're forced to think into, like, for example, ethno-linguistic groupings of people, right? Like, when did language become a, an identity? Like, please, like, when? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and how does that now, like... I'm Afrikaans. So now, so now yeah, so now language <laughs> is an identity, right? I'm a, I'm a Afrikaans. What? Yeah. I'm, I'm an Afrikaans, therefore now I cannot be a Kosa, for example. So when I want to yeah. think about how it is I I enter into a kind of relationship or like a, a, how I build community with someone else, it doesn't, it's that that door is closed. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like purely on a linguistic level. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like I can't, like I have to take Isi Kosa as a, as a third additional language third additional think about that logic like even at school right? yeah. you learned it in that way you learn about how to immediately you setting up so to add on to what lee was saying as well we need we need a multiculturalism yes to a certain degree but we need a multiculturalism that's not like that idea of these kinds of rigid silos in which we don't need a rainbow nation, in other words, is what I'm right. saying. Yeah. We need something right. that can transcend beyond that. And I think this is where like right. Walton might be more instructive in the sense of like, what does it mean to have a pan-African um solidarity around 
like the shared experience of blackness, oh, right? Yeah. Like, and the shared experience of blackness is tied to the centralized power of the state. Like the state centralizes power and who are the, who are the bodies that experience that power violently? It's black bodies universally yeah. across the board for the last, for the long 21st century and for the longer 20th century. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, like, and so what does it mean now to act on that? You know, what does it mean to, to, to start there? Yeah. And that's not to sound cynical. Sure. Or like no, I don't think that's, I don't like, think that's cynical. You're building a mountain sorry, for us. <laughs> go, go on it. And sorry, sorry. No, that's all that I wanted to say. Um, yeah. Like, I was reading up now while while I was listening to you guys. I was reading up on the first Pan African Conference in 1900, right? And this Henry Sylvester Williams guy, who's like a lawyer in um, from Trinidad, right? And he's all the whole idea. He, he he sets it up. He sets this meeting up in 1897 in direct response to the Berlin Conference of 1884. Yeah. Right. And he sets it up because he says, like, guys, Europe is like. They are coming together to do things on this continent. Like we all have some sort of connection here. Like whether we are in Trinidad or whether we are in like Benin, like we have the shared, like universal thing. Yeah. That we can let and that we need to come together. And now we need to build up a defense because yeah. this thing is gaining traction. Do you and know, so what idea. does it mean to, to take that idea now and to say, okay. Do you know what I'm saying? To run with it and to produce something. I don't know. Like <laughs> that's that's where I think we need to. I agree. Like, that's where the work needs to be done. I agree. Can I just interject here because I okay. think the idea was like the thing about Walton said about borders, transcend borders. We must understand how those borders came to be. The idea was to split Africa up into these small states where they cannot have. They have very their bargaining power, international bargaining power was so weak that if you don't take this money for this amount of crops that we need, we're just gonna go to your neighbor. And so the bargaining power of small independent African states was so weak that they would just take whatever they got. The power came, was the power comes in the unity of these small states, these small countries in, in, in Africa. And I think what is important is to go back to that, to mm. say, hey, guys, we need to kind of work together because they're just playing us against each other, number one. That's that they just play us against each other. And to keep that, to keep it small, to keep it separate, to fund monarchies, to, you must understand, like, that was, it's funded internationally to keep it in place because that's how uh, international trade benefits from African countries with absolute rule or military rule. Um, they don't wanna see a unification, a pan-Africanist economy because that would upset the status quo. And uh, that's a threat to capitalism yeah. and Western capitalism and yeah. And, um, yeah. And you know, East, you know yeah. Yeah. Sorry. sorry, sorry. And even yeah. okay, like he's like like China. You know, like we always talk about the West, and uh, but uh, you know they've learned a lot of things from <laughs> from their Western co cohorts. So that's another thing you need to be vigilant of. Like no matter who comes, we need to be ready. Africa needs to sort ourselves out internally first. South Africa, as as Walton says, like we gonna go have Pan Africanism on the continent when we don't have it at home. So I think like that is the first step, and um, it's yeah. easier said than done. You guys just painted like, a massive like mountain. Isaac, like That's Isaac Newton said in that in that uh, documentary about his life, he said, "Why would you want to be in the minority? It's a clan in majority. Why would you want to like why? Why? Like, why would like, you? Why would you want? Why? why would you want to? Why would you want to be? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like is Beautiful. there I, is there a way that we can? Yeah. Like, is there is there is there an idea of the majority like that? Do you know what I'm saying? That's yeah, right. African that we can all kind of lay claim to, and yeah, exactly. And, and I I I I, uh, I mean I'm fortunate. I hate 
that I had to do coursework for my PhD <laughs> here in the States. But I'm very grateful for one course in particular by uh, Professor Bogues at Brown. And a lot of that course was just about reading, you know, what's considered like uh, important text in the Africana world. So texts of people who uh, find themselves in the diaspora, descendants of slave, uh, enslaved people, uh, and so on. Uh, and a lot of them are writing back to Africa, like constantly writing back to Africa, not in a pining kind of idealized way, mm. but to say we have been stolen from that place, brought here to make money for people on a whole other continent of oh, white yeah. people. What can we do now in the place that we are at that will aid in the progression uh, of the people of the continent of Africa. Like that's how they were thinking. That's how Du Bois was thinking. That's how Walter Rodney is thinking, Claudia Jones. All of these people are thinking about, they not think, they think, of course they're thinking about how do I improve the material conditions for the black people living in Trinidad today, in Tobago, in Guyana, in the United States, Brazil, wherever. They, of course, they're thinking about that, but they're not thinking about that in isolation of the continent of yeah, Africa. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Africa has to be doing that for itself, but also for the diaspora as well. Like we need to be, as Africans on the continent, we need to be thinking about Africans elsewhere as well and be, be writing towards them and have them write towards us. And we have this cross conversation. The thing is like, Pan-Africanism doesn't always have to be direct trade. It can be a, a sharing of ideas. It doesn't always have to be direct action. It, it can be, a, you know, sharing of lecture notes, of pamphlets, of, uh, you know, like a podcast where we take very seriously the, the conditions that people are living in. The other day I was thinking about like, why does nobody think about the conditions of black people in Argentina? And that's because Argentina succeeded in creating this image of a white nation. They don't even think that they are indigenous people in Argentina. So the indigenous people are erased. The black people, the, the, the African Argentines, they call themselves Afro-Argentine are completely erased from any imaginary, not just in the region, but globally. We don't think, uh, we think Argentina is a white country because of like, the fucking Spanish, but then also all the Germans that came after uh, World War II. All I'm saying is like Pan-Africanism can take many forms mm. and it can take many, uh, it, it, it can operate with many mechanisms. And it's flawed, but it has to be like a constantly changing system. For instance, we cannot think about pan-Africanism if we don't think about fe like femicide on the continent, you know? Yeah. If we don't think about uh, anti-LGBTQ, uh, IA plus uh, uh, sentiment and violence uh, on the continent which is often retributive violence or, or, you know, this kind of idea of transformational violence or uh, like if I beat you up or, or, you know, sexually assault you, then you're gonna turn straight or whatever. Uh, we cannot have a pan-Africanism absent of those things. And those are gonna be hard conversations to have because people hold hard and fast to religious ideas, to ideas that were really brought here, uh, you know, there's a lot Cultural, of yeah. there's a lot of discrimination on the continent. I I'm not denying that, but a, so much was brought by the British and the French into legislation around sexuality and expressions of sexuality, where where things were not as firm, like they just were not as firm as as that in, no, in the past. I mean it's the invention of tradition right like right. we talk about yeah. like gender on this continent is we are we suffer with a, a certain history of the invention of tradition like and it's it's violent like it's so violent i mean one of the big critiques just to bring it back to the eswatini conversation for a minute one of the big critiques um of 
the South African media was like, you know, when it's the read dance, then it's like, you know, like, yeah, then South African yeah, journalists yeah. are there, like live yeah, on the front yeah. scene, you know, yeah. and nobody's questioning this practice that is so like violent towards women's bodies in that space, in that space. Um, and so you're absolutely right, Walton. I think like, I think, yeah, I mean, we need to talk about femicide and we need to talk about gender. I mean, it's a big thing. So what will, what I understand from what you guys have said, all these things don't operate in a vacuum or they don't right. operate independently. You talk about uh, predatory capitalism, you talk about imperialism, you talk about uh, white supremacy, you talk about pan-Africanism, you talk about femicide, uh, you talk about um, these things, pan-Africanism and the type of pan-Africanism that you are speaking about touches on all these things like it like it, it can be it can show itself or it can manifest through these different mediums um and to you can't you can't you need to be open to that you know what i mean you can't just you can't operate independently if you are just writing to speak to the people uh or represent people in uh, black and oppressed people and indigenous people in Argentine, Argent, uh, Argentina, <laughs> Argentina, 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 yeah. Argentina. Bra, Argentina. Bra, Bra, that's what we, <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what yeah. happened to your brain. <laughs> I caught my mouth, my mouth stopped Argentine, Argentine. But what I mean is like, then if someone comes to you and says, hey, look here, but the, uh, there's anti-gay laws in other African countries, you know, like, would you like to co, uh, uh, co, co cooperate on a writing piece regarding this? It's all oppression that are, that's brought from systems abroad that's manifested themselves and they are em employed uh, to keep people in power and keep other people oppressed. I, 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 I you know, so yeah, it can't operate in a vacuum. It that doesn't operate independently either. Like these things are broad. Uh, these concepts of of black liberalism and pan Africanism on the continent and the diaspora. At, I, yeah, I, I I do want to say that I th I think like any structure of power that operates on the authority of a very small yeah. group of people is going to result in some form of uh, repression at the very least and you know oppression at, at its worst uh, and if th this is why you know I, I'm I just named pan-Africanism as the one thing because it's the one thing that I think about constantly I, maybe I don't think about it in the in the traditional terms of like you know the 1970s or something like that where it was like about establishing nation states Mm, yeah, I think uh, at that time it you know, was necessary. Like, it was like, necessary. Like, like, you know, they they were very serious. Kwame Nkrumah was serious about establishing a nation state. Great leader, brilliant mind, but couldn't think beyond the nation yeah. state at that time because that's the, the tools and the mechanisms they had at hand. So when I say pan-Africanism, I don't necessarily mean that. I, I mean a more... A more, for lack of a better word, a more horizontal kind of relational politics of empathy. It's a thing I said earlier also, but like a kind of relational politics of empathy, something where, where you know, your your concern, your your primary concern is the liberation of your fellow person. And it shouldn't, and and I use the term empathy because it shouldn't, it will not contain the things we use to dis discriminate against each other. So like, it will be absent of gender or sex or, or any of those things because it is a true aspiration to have liberation for all of us. I'm not saying we're not gonna think about gender or sex or any of those things, but I, th I think like your, your politics of empathy really has to come from a kind of a, 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 a thought through philosophy of of sentiment and like you know relation yeah. i don't know what the it fuck sounds fluffy anymore. you know what i mean it sounds like, it, so it sounds fluffy and i'm fine with it, that like i'm also a, i'm also 
it's, the, no, the, it's not fluffy at all. I think it's but, but it's what's it's needed. I think it it's, makes it's perfect needed. sense. Like, yeah. I don't like, think it's well, fluffy. Yeah. I don't don't shoot yourself down. Like I think it's perfectly formulated. It's it's yeah. yeah I think it works. Thanks. Yeah. And like Andrik said, like you know, it's gonna be more digital. The only problem with that, like, because like you're talking about uh, open source, uh, talking about like you know, like uh, lecture notes or videos to, you know, but the state controls borders and it controls the means of communication. So like, look what's happening in a sort of like internet's down, social media's down, borders are being, 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 look in the, in the States also, I think people believe like the States is like this kind of semi-liberated space, but, there's so much choking going on around the internet. Like, you know, th- there's constantly stuff on the f- Senate floor going on around. Like, what is the new legislation we can bring in to basically control what what people have and don't yeah. have access to? There are certain websites that I used to access as a South Africa to watch my pirate shit that I can't even. That's like completely blocked. Like the you know the the website is just dead a dead zone uh the the one thing i did want to say about like open source and all of that is i encountered someone during my brief stint on tiktok there was this one person that i followed who was doing super interesting work around creating software for just various kinds of he's a code uh, a code uh, writer uh, and a website developer and a graphic designer he does all of these things. But the one thing that he does as part of his uh, his personal practice of black anarchism is to create software for for free for people to use as alternatives to uh, software that needs to be purchased. So he was like raising nice. funds and, you know, t- trying, to, trying to get up. But it was like really a, a mode to operate outside of capitalism and also to operate outside of the state. So like very independent of any state regulatory bodies and also very independently of any private corporations who might want to buy in or, you know, mm. crush, crush his project. And, and that's practical stuff like that. That is like hands-on practical things that people can use yeah. now. Like I can get the link, I can go to this and I can use this. Um, and I think like, we always come back to the theory and the practical. It's, it's, it needs to work together because the theory informs a way in which things need to be done and or why it needs to be done. And the practical is like, okay, this is how it is, it is done. Like, this is the tools now. This is like, let's, let's hit the ground. Um, I, know Aiden awesome. need, I know Aiden needs to say something, but I just want to say it's always hilarious to me how we start off with a main topic and we end up like, you know, it's well, it's entirely related. I'm not saying it's unrelated, but like it's <laughs> none of us plan to sorry, end up guys. with like <laughs> free software <laughs> as a pan-Africanist anarchist politic of empathy <laughs> practice. <laughs> hence, hence the intro in post. Hence the intro in post. But... <laughs> We need to, like, as South Africans, Swatini. if you are, like, still here with us, even if you, I'm, I'm saying South Africans, anybody, <laughs> anywhere in the world, if you are still listening at this point, please tune into what's going on in Eswatini. Uh, the people are fighting against absolute monarchy, but within that, they are communist uh, comrades who are operating out of South Africa, the, the, the Eswatini Communist Party is is stationed in South Africa because they were banned uh, and they are making moves there. So those of you who are, you know, kind of left-leaning uh, communist socialist supporters, they, there's that that you can go and find out about. There are people who are organizing among themselves in their communities, in their neighborhoods, uh, to resist uh, the oppression that they are under. Uh, Conditions are hard. Uh, Conditions are violent. And state repression at the moment is uh, at an all-time high. And I know this isn't, you know, 
nobody in the government is listening to this in South Africa, but I feel like whoever is and can push their ward councillors who can write and tweet and whatever to all the uh, elected officials uh, in your area and in your province, um, all of these people, like we need to just be pressing all of our officials now. Like that's the one thing that we can do uh, as both Aiden and Lee pointed out, there's so much trade going from South Africa into Eswatini and that might be a mechanism that we could use to really stop the, the, the killing of uh, individuals who are, who are only exercising their right to exist as a human being in the country that they were born in. So I mean, it might be useful for us to go and just to include in the show notes, perhaps there's uh, some uh, spaces people could donate or somehow contribute financially to the cause. Um, I don't know if there is practical practical examples of, you know, because right now, I mean, I don't know what people need on the ground, but that might be something to think about. Yeah. Actual, you know, yeah. Yeah, but that's something I can go and see. Maybe I can go do some yeah. research and come back to everyone. Yeah, let's awesome. check and see what we can do, and then add it to the show notes. Uh, add it to the to the YouTube notes. Maybe can put a live link in the YouTube video or something like that. I don't know, um, but s- somehow it will be linked somewhere. Also, follow us on Twitter, JXC Podcast, because uh, I I try and update like opinion stuff but also maybe interesting articles or uh, anything like that but for the next stuff. you know for the next couple of weeks i think i'll just dedicate the space to uh, SOT and um south africa and you know solidarity stuff so, yeah